This is Eli Lake, and welcome back to The Reeducation. My guest today is Vice News reporter and fifth column podcaster, Michael Moynihan. Our topic is why so many geniuses have embraced such terrible politics. On December 4th, 1948, the New York Times published a letter denouncing Menachem Begin before a visit to the United States. He was a resistance leader in British Mandate Palestine, a founding father of Israel. Begin's visit to America was on the eve of the first general election in the history of the Jewish state, and the letter asserted that his party, Herut, was, quote, closely akin in its organization, methods, political philosophy, and social appeal to the Nazi and fascist parties. To this day, the letter is often cited by progressives to score an unearned political point against Likud, the political party that Begin ultimately formed as a center-right coalition. That's because the letter itself was signed by some of the most brilliant Jews of the 20th century. Political theorist Hannah Arendt, physicist Albert Einstein, and the philosopher Sidney Hook were among the signatories. And yet, the letter was a terrible slur. Not only was it offensive to equate Begin's Herut party with Nazism and fascism, Begin himself had lost his entire family to the Nazis, and had survived a hard labor camp in the Soviet Union. But Begin was also crucial to the very survival of Israel as a democracy. After his Ergun resistance organization, earlier that year in 1948, had arranged a shipment of arms to be delivered to its militia, Israel's new national army confronted the vessel and opened fire. This could have easily been the start of a Jewish civil war, but Begin had the wisdom to order his men to stand down. Instead of sulking in exile, Begin then committed himself to opposition politics, only to lose and lose and lose again to David Ben-Gurion's Labor Party. But he kept at it, and in 1977, the Likud coalition finally won national power, and Begin became prime minister. If Begin had been a fascist, he would have never ordered his men to stand down in 1948 he would not have agreed to participate in opposition politics, and Israel may have remained effectively a one-party state to this day, or much longer than it did. I bring all of this up because it illustrates an important principle about genius and politics. There is no denying the contributions of Arendt, Einstein, and Hook to their respective fields, and yet they got Menachem Begin totally and utterly wrong. So why were their opinions so influential in 1948, and in some cases, to this day? I think it has to do with a common fallacy about intelligence. Most people believe human beings possess a singular intelligence. Sometimes this is expressed as intellectual quotient, or IQ. We believe there are smart people and dumb people. But as the great paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould argued in his 1981 book, The Mismeasure of Man, this is wrong. The human mind is too complex to be assigned a numeric score. Rather, people have different kinds of aptitudes. Einstein had a magnificent mind for understanding the laws and nature of space and time, but he possessed no special wisdom when it came to politics in Israel. Now, there are, of course, exceptions. There are Renaissance men and Renaissance women, people who are brilliant across many fields. Think of Thomas Jefferson or Winston Churchill. A modern example would be Vladimir Zelensky, a fantastic comic actor 
who now is bravely leading Ukraine's resistance to Russia's invasion as its country's president. But for the most part, towering artists and intellectuals, especially in the 20th century, have often found themselves on the wrong side of history. It took Jean-Paul Sartre until 1956 to finally realize that Joseph Stalin was kind of a bad guy. The novelist and former MI6 officer Graham Greene was an apologist for Fidel Castro and the Soviet Union until the collapse of the evil empire. This vast chasm between creative genius and political judgment is particularly noticeable when it comes to popular music. Request a song. And what is the song? Oh, Killing in the Name. Um, no. Oh, no, yeah, yeah, we can do that. Perfect. I need it, Matt. I need it. It's going to get me through the day. All right, stick around. I don't know when we'll be able to play it, but we will play it. Awesome. Thanks, buddy. That was a snippet from a kind of protest last month by two DJs for KISS FM in Vancouver, British Columbia. As a statement against their radio station's decision to change formats, they played nothing but Rage Against the Machine's radical anthem, Killing in the Name, for hours on end, back to back. As the kids say, that song slaps. Some of those that work forces are the same that bar crosses. Some of those that work forces are the same that bar crosses. Some of those that work forces are the same that bar crosses. Some of those that work forces are the same that bar crosses. Now, I would love it if Rage Against the Machine in the 1990s used their celebrity and genius to support the Iranian students who led an uprising in 1999 at Tehran University or the Otpor movement that resisted the tyranny of Slobodan Milosevic in Serbia. But no, sadly, Tom Morello and his band decided instead to support some of the most radical and violent political movements on the planet. They actually wrote a pion to the Shining Path a Peruvian Maoist group responsible for the killings of thousands of innocents. Here's a witness to one of their massacres from a recent France 24 documentary. The killing began here on the 3rd of April. They were hitting people with axes and machetes in cold blood. The place was entirely covered in blood. Still today, I remember that. For most Peruvians, the Shining Path is their country's al-Qaeda. But for Rage Against the Machine, the Shining Path were righteous revolutionaries. The video to this song, Bomb Track, begins with the words, For 13 years, the people of Peru have waged revolutionary war against their oppressive U.S.-backed government. It portrays the Shining Path leader, Abimal Guzman, whose arrest in 1992 spurred Rage to record the track as a freedom fighter. Like Einstein on Begin, they couldn't have been more wrong. Now, there are so many other examples of great musicians and artists adopting horrific political causes. John Lennon flirted in the late 1960s and early 1970s with some truly radical American ideas and movements. The Clash named one of their lesser records for brutal Nicaraguan communists known as the Sandinistas. More recently, most deaf has embraced the 9-11 truth movement. It goes without saying that the political predilections of these artists do not diminish their art. For more on that, listen to episode five on the art and the artist. At the same time, there is a lesson in all of this. 
a creative genius looks at the world really differently than the rest of us. That's an indispensable skill when recording an original piece of music, painting a masterpiece, or writing a great novel. But it can often lead the artist to embrace vulgar and radical politics. There is a sense there where the kind of common sense of those of us who do not possess these great gifts can sort of sniff out oftentimes, especially foreign demagogues or people who have become radical and embrace sort of violent movements that are leading to nowhere. Anyway, all of this is okay because we should stop asking our artists to be our leaders or moral guides. If you think about it, it's kind of ridiculous that every four years, the Democratic National Convention features a Lollapalooza's kind of roster of great musicians who are just simply there to sort of lend their support for their party's candidate. I'm not taking anything away from the Democrats on this, but let's face it, there's Kid Rock, the Oak Ridge Boys, and what, Five for Fighting who support the Republicans. But nonetheless, I'm not worried about the politics. I'm saying, why would anybody care what Billie Eilish or Jay-Z thinks about who you should vote for or what causes you should support? Because we should only ask our artists to do one thing, and that is to produce great art. Because really, that's important on its own, and that should just be enough. Well, right now we are really fortunate to have a dear friend and himself a great podcaster at the Fifth Column, and America's number one anti-plagiarism cop, <laughs> a great thinker and reader, intellectual. Michael Moynihan, thanks so much for coming into the re-education camp. Thank you, Eli. It's a, it's a great honor to be here. I have followed the new podcast and enjoyed it greatly, as I've told you. And I've been, I've been catching up in the past couple of days. I had a lot of driving to do, and I had a lot of Eli Lake in the background. Well, I appreciate it. Barreling so down 95. In between and listeners, if you haven't checked out the fifth column, it's it's a it was an inspiration for me getting into the podcast. Game. If What's you haven't, there's something wrong with you. Because yeah, the there best. is something wrong with you. Because it's a really <laughs> these guys were there early. Calling, oh my goodness, calling BS on yeah a yeah. lot of the uh, cultural insanity. Yeah, we Today's, were the Ramones of podcasts, right? We were the original, the Ramones yeah. of inspired the pistols. The Ramones of the post woke podcasts. <laughs> I would say yes, the the Ramones. Well, anyway, now that we're on the topic, the topic today is, of yeah. course, why is it that so many great artists have horrendous politics? And are there any exceptions to the rule? But before we get to that, let's just sort of talk about some of the biggies. And the first group that comes to mind is, of course, the only band that matters, The Clash. Mm -hmm. If yeah. you're a Gen Xer like me and Moynihan, they're unavoidable. They are a really great band. One of and, my favorite bands, yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And yet they were let's let's they they were on the wrong side in the Cold War. Would you say that? <laughs> Is it fair to say they were basically I think on they the were team. on the wrong side of history in a lot of Yeah, things. they were on the wrong side of history. They yeah. were on the Soviet side of the Cold War. Well, I'll just say this, Eli, to start, is that yes. you know, having, you know, politics that are slightly heterodox when it comes to, you know, mainstream music culture. I don't think they're probably pretty mainstream when it comes to politics in general, it actually trains you. It trains you in a great way because you, if you, if you want your politics to match with, you know, the politics of your bands, of your novelists, et cetera, you're not going to listen to a lot of good bands or read a lot of great novels. So at a very young age, become accustomed to other people's views, even if they're very different than your own. And, you know, it's good 
to listen to bands like The Clash who have terrible politics. And, and, you know, they don't hide their terrible politics at all, considering there is a great triple album called Sandinista. Yes, there is. <laughs> you know, I, I guess it, they couldn't name it Year Zero with Pol Pot or something. But Sandinista <laughs> was, and you know, it's funny because when you asked me to do this, you ran down a couple of a couple of bands, The Clash being one of the first ones, which is which is fantastic because I know a lot about The Clash and I listen to The Clash constantly. And it made me kind of look a little deeper into some of the politics because I remembered watching a documentary that was produced by Don Letts, very famous, I think Jamaican English DJ, and later joined Mick Jones from from The Clash and his subsequent group. Mescalares? Uh, no, uh, Big Out of Your Dynamite. Uh, oh, Jones. right, right. McJones' band, and Don Letts did a documentary about The Clash called West Way to the World. And I remember watching it in 2003, 2004, and going back to it and, you know, remembering a quote from Joe Strummer, who died, I think, the year before it came out, almost 20 years, by the way, since Joe Strummer died in 2002. Yeah. Really depressing. And, you know, I'm going back, and, and, and I was right that Joe Strummer mellowed quite a bit in his politics as he got older, as a lot of people do. And unlike people in huge major bands that were major punk rock bands and major pop bands too, because keep in mind that they, Should I Stay or Should I Go and Rock the Casbah were huge singles. At the time, The Clash was opening on that tour for Combat Rock that had the song Rock the Casbah on it. They were opening for The Who. So they were playing stadiums. They became this enormous, enormous band and you're in a band like that and all of your bad political ideas are then, you know, frozen in amber for the rest of time. And unfortunately, I went back to one thing. I was just watching a clip and I didn't remember this, Eli. There was a show, which, by the way, gets into somebody else that we're going to talk about called Rock Against Racism. Oh, yeah. I think happened in 78 or 79 or something. Uh, 78, I think. And it was a response, actually to Eric Clapton's drunken racist rant in Birmingham, England. The response was Rock Against Racism. They had a show in London, but he, he had, you know, Joe Strummer had to ruin it because I didn't know this and I didn't remember this and I just saw it and I said, no, that can't be true. Wound the tape back. Is that right? Maybe. Google image searched, oh yes it is. Joe Strummer is on stage, <laughs> Rock Against Racism, wearing a Bader Meinhof t-shirt. Oh really? Yeah, celebrating the RAF, the Red Army Faction, the terrorist group who killed many, many people in Germany around that time in 78. That was when they were, they, they called it the German autumn. It was one of their worst times. And he's on stage wearing this t-shirt. Yes, like, and oh, wait, yeah, at the end, the Bader Meinhof was so nuts, they all turn on each other. Yes, and their lawyer, and this is really yeah. actually kind of interesting because it's it's in the you know vein of what we're talking about here. In extreme politics, you you kind of go from extreme to extreme. I mean, whether you're David Horowitz or somebody like in the Bader Meinhof, there was a, just a, David Horowitz now is who's he with the Blaze? I don't even know. Yeah, he's in the okay. He's like a he's he's hardcore, he but he started off as an editor for Ramparts, which was the first one of the yeah. first kind of radical mag New left magazines. Yeah, yes. yeah. Yeah, which yeah, it was a Catholic magazine. Way, most of the alumni of Ramparts, little aside, have all kind of gone right. Look at Saul. What's Saul Stern? Saul Stern. Um, yeah, Peter, right. Peter Collier, who passed away. Yes. Uh, David Horowitz. Ron Radosh, I think, probably wrote for them at one point. Yeah. But yeah, th that happened in a, in a, a different way. The Bader Meinhof, one of their lawyers, a guy named Horst Mahler, 
who was a member uh, slash lawyer for the Butter Meinhof, is I believe now in prison in Germany for denying the Holocaust. He's become far right. So not surprising that these people flop from one extreme to the well, other. But, yeah. but yeah, it, but you know, with, with Strummer, it's interesting because there are a lot of quotes uh, from Strummer like past like 1990, where he's kind of thinking about his politics again and saying, you know what? Maybe all the things that I thought about were not right in that. Well, that's what Johnny Ryan, that's what Johnny Rodden. Johnny Rodden became a MAGA guy. <laughs> yeah, Johnny Rodden went MAGA and he was, in the, he was yes. one of the founders of the Sex Pistols with sex, I mean, were the sex yeah. pistols political, which is a which is a question because you could argue that they were kind of anti-politics overall. Yeah. They were just, a, yeah. they just kind of hated everything. Yeah, I mean, anarchy in the UK is yeah. not like a, a, like a Bukharan track. No. I mean, it's not, it's not <laughs> anarchy in any sense that anybody who's an anarchist would rec recognize it. It's just this creed de corps against everything that's around you. Now, Joe Strummer and a lot of the bands of the, of the 70s in England kind of codified that in a different way by saying we are you know, in 79 against Thatcher. But, you know, look, you listen to these people in 77 and 78, and they're making arguments about the shittiness of England that kind of sounds like Margaret Thatcher's campaign themes in 78 and 79. You know, that, that it was a country that was broken. Yeah, like everybody's on the dole. Working. Everyone's on the dole. The famous poster created by Sanchi and Sanchi, which is one of the greatest political posters of all time, which, says, which has a very, very long dole queue, and it says labor is not working which is a fantastic poster. It's one of yeah. the better political posters. But being around in that time, you have things like Bader Meinhof. You know, Joe Strummer has also made a lot of people mad when he wore an H-Block t-shirt, which is essentially throwing his support behind the IRA, which was blowing things up in England at the time. And there was a kind of thing about this music when people say, you know, the politics of punk rock, I always stop them and ask them what they actually mean by it, because there's some that's really political. You know, Dead Kennedys, Gerald Biafra, these people who have, you know, he ran for mayor of San Francisco. He's a very political person. But a lot of it is just kind of a middle finger to the establishment. And I always thought it was really funny that in the first Clash records, there is a song on it. It's a good song called B Bored with the USA. I'm so bored yes, with the USA. I love that song. That song actually started out as, as the lyric was, I'm so bored with you. And somebody misheard it. And so oh. it became, I'm so bored with the USA. It wasn't something that they were like, we're some. And then it turned to this thing, like, oh, we hate American influence everywhere. And what do all these guys become? They become interested in hip hop. They basically become a New York yeah. band. They become interested in disco. Joe Strummer ends kind of the end of his life and his career. He's essentially playing honky tonk and country music. I mean, they were obsessed with the US. And there's, you know, great scene in this film, this Don Let's film where he's talking about how amazing it was to come to America for the first time. It felt like he was in a movie and he always wanted to be like in America because he was so excited by the music and, and the culture when he was young. And then on their first record, they have a song called I'm So Bored with the USA. That's, right. about, that's about what the politics of a lot of punk rock is, is just what can annoy people. Susie from Susie and the Banshees is not a Nazi. Why yeah. do I say that? You can find Susie. You can find her in swastika. In swastika gear. You know, same with Sid Vicious, the famous Bill Grundy appearance, where I think Susie's in the back there too. But they're, the, you know, this kind of SS thing. Their parents fought the Nazis in the Second right. World War. The way to give them the middle finger was to wear Nazi regalia. It wasn't, they weren't anti-Semites actually, they weren't Nazis. There were Nazis in that universe, but they were just kind of screwing around all the time trying to poke people in the eye. So Yeah, I, and then in the, in the US, the straight edge punks tended to be very progressive and they would fight with like the skinhead Nazi types. 
and by the way, when you actually Antifa have, was like a punk thing originally. Yeah, yeah, yes. sure. yeah Black Block and things like that. But you know, yeah. when you when you have these guys who are their teenage years writing political songs that were you know that they later renounced because like like minor threat ian mckay very famous straight edge bands one of the most famous straight edge bands in america they have a song on their on their i think first seven inch called guilty of being white i'm a convict for a racist crime i've only served 19 years of my time and like i'm being persecuted mm. for something i didn't i'm sorry for something i didn't do i lynched someone and i don't know who those are the lyrics and these are the most progressive band out there they later had to you know renounce that song but they you know these are not you know fully formed political thoughts i mean yeah, my brother like, my brother was a Swedish band that had an anti-mike dukakis song by the way called as Nuke well the they Duke. should have <laughs> yeah. as well they should have it was an awful candidate <laughs> yeah. i want to now you know we've, we've talked about punk and and i think it's important that we started that conversation there because the class really did all have awful politics and they were great geniuses i want to move on to something called musicians united for sensible energy MUSC mm -hmm. Muse. They had a famous 1979 concert in New York. I think it was Central Park. This is right after, this is, I think, right around Three Mile Island. It is. Oh, uh, yes. It was at Madison Square Garden, actually. Yeah. It was like, okay, right. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of the opposite of punk. It's like all of your favorite, like the Doobie <laughs> Brothers are there. <laughs> Springsteen. Uh, the Doobie Springsteen. Yeah. Crosby, Stills, and Nash. <laughs> Jackson Brown and everybody's yeah. like taking it to the streets is the big finale. Yeah. yeah. So it's 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 a lot of dad rock, which I mean any of those any of those benefits of that time, Jackson Brown plays it all of them. Oh he, all of every, them. Every single one. Yeah. Anyway, I thought it was very interesting because like they're all so serious about it. They're like, you know what, listen, we're rock stars, but this is a really serious one. Like wake uh, you know, heighten everyone's awareness about how dangerous nuclear power is. Let's fast forward 40 some years. And it's like that activism is one of the reasons why Russia almost took over Europe or it's like coming close. It's like if it wasn't this is the beginning of this no nukes, no nuclear power movement, which then, you know, is big deal in Europe. And of course, there's other things that happen like Fukushima and Japan. But the bottom line is, is that as a result of this, we stopped building nuclear power plants in Europe and America yeah, yeah. and became more reliant on you know, climate change, fossil fuels, yeah. fossil fuel yeah. and dirtbag regimes like Russia that produce it. Yeah, no, it's not. I think this is actually an important point because it's not that people in bands that I like often had different politics from me. They often just had wrong politics. I mean, right. it, wasn't, it wasn't like I think that you should be 21 to buy an AR-15, not 18. It's like, oh, that's a sensible debate and conversation we can have. This is stuff like Mumia is innocent. Nuclear yeah. power is bad. The Sandinistas <laughs> are the future of Latin America. It's like, wait a second, I don't know where we're going here. And, you know, to go back to, you know, it's really interesting because they don't hang on to these very long because as a musician, you have an enormous amount of influence over people, an enormous amount of power to get people, you know, if not involved in a singular issue, then, then kind of have a, you know, a sense of what your politics should be. You follow the musicians, right. they're the cool guys. You kind of in that, you know, milieu, that's, that's fine. But it's funny that nobody ever holds them to account afterwards. I thought there was a, it was a funny inter interview to go very briefly back to Joe Strummer that I found when you told me last night that we're going to talk about Strummer. I ended, ended up taking a bunch of books off my shelf. I have a bunch of Clash books. And this was one where somebody was asking him, and I think around 2099, it said, like, you know, you were a man who appreciated socialism. You were socialism for the future. And, you know, what do you think about, you know, it's horrible rock music. And how these people sell out. And he's like, no, it's great. 
He's like, you know, we've sold our stuff to Levi's and, you know, I'd sell them to more if it was good. And, and, was, and then he said, if there was some good liquor, this is what I clipped. If there was some good liquor that you thought was good, I wouldn't balk at that either, providing it was decent liquor and not some cheap trick stuff. But yeah, <laughs> I think definitely we've had like Levi's adverts, all kinds of things. And he just defends like, no, I mean, it's, it's fine to sell out. That is not the Joe Stremmer of 1979, 1980, 1981. But this is often the case is that these people either become less political, not political at all. And but there's a conversion. There's conversion or they just keep quiet. Like Springsteen's an interesting example because, you know, a guy that lives on a, you know, an estate in Colts Neck, New Jersey, you know, as the voice of the working class has always been a bit. I mean, I don't think Springsteen is ever you know, probably three quarters, maybe five, six of his life, he's been very rich, right? Yeah. I mean, Joe, Joe Strummer, his father was a diplomat and he went to boarding school. I mean, this is not somebody that was a member of the proletariat. So it's a very odd thing. Like Springsteen does a thing with the most mainstream person, you know, does a podcast with Obama, you know, does a book with Obama. But in 1990, 89 and 90, he was doing a for instance, I think it was in California, did a big benefit and fundraiser with Jackson Brown, by the way, and Bonnie Raitt for the Christic Institute. Oh, that, my friends, is a rabbit hole I recommend you go down. I won't, I won't detour us too long in the Christic Institute, but it was in support of a lawsuit that turned out not only to be full of shit, but totally wrong. I mean, they were, they'd accused people of being involved in murder when these people were not involved in murder. It was actually a Sandinista related thing. But and incidentally, I think I should probably do a podcast about this sometime. It was a story that I was interested in way back when, and I cracked the case myself, <laughs> swear to God, and then emailed somebody uh, who was involved. That person later came out and said, yeah, actually, everybody had it wrong. This murder that had taken place in La Penca in, in Nicaragua was not the CIA. So I won't detour us, but look that up, the La Penca bombing which, you know, Bruce Springsteen, Jackson Brown, Bonnie Raitt, these people were supporting a lawsuit that was blaming this bombing on the CIA. And it was actually the Sandinistas who did it. So like weird things like that. There's not a lot of accountability for being wrong about these. That things. is a very good point. Before we kind of get into some of the why here, like why is it that, you know, there's so many of these, our favorite artists are, are have, have terrible politics. We should note on the other side of this, that you can also have it go wrong in the right-wing direction. Oh, for sure, for sure. Well, and I keep thinking of, in 1968, James Brown, I think, endorses Humphrey. By 72, he's a Nixon man. He's a Nixon man, yeah. And he's asked about, he's like, are you a Republican? He's like, no, I'm a countryman. At this yeah. point, James Brown, I mean, by the way, anybody, you should just know that James Brown is, is a towering figure in American music history. And, and a total lunatic. And a total lunatic. Exactly. Okay. Fair enough. Right. And he's like, at this point, he's like, really, I kind of influenced by what is like this neo Garveyite philosophy. That's there was something called Tony Brown's journal. If you remember, it's the idea sure. that true black civil rights was actually capitalism mm -hmm. and ownership of your own businesses. And so he's starting like James Brown restaurants. He's doing all this stuff. It doesn't, it ends up like it, he's, Again, much better musician, much better band leader than he is mm -hmm. a kind of entrepreneur. But, you know, all of this leads him to support Nixon in 72, which is just an interesting curveball. Mm. I'm not saying I would have supported McGovern in 72, but Nixon was a pretty awful, corrupt man as a president. Yeah. And the other big example, as you know, is that uh, we mentioned earlier is uh, Eric Clapton. Yeah, yeah, who, yeah. You know, if I want to be like 
a little trollish. Do we really count him as a great artist? Anyway, no, <laughs> no we don't. <laughs> but nonetheless, his politics sucks and so does his music. Yeah, it's appropriate. Yeah, but no, he, that, that he, thing he, with Clapton. I mean, but the thing about Clapton, though, it's interesting because that outburst where he was clearly under the influence and, you know, you can make the kind of in vino, in heroin, in whatever Veritas yeah, yeah. argument. He didn't be he wasn't very political after that. And it also was a time that, you know, he because when he when he became political again, which was recently in a covid way against lockdowns and everything, he didn't realize that he wasn't paying attention to how the times had changed. The second you start doing stuff like that now, people are going to go through your garbage and remember the stuff of the past. People hadn't remembered that. That was a totally forgotten thing. And, you know, if you are a man of of I would say broadly of the left, those previous indiscretions, especially if you're a very vigorous man of the left, will be forgotten with like like um, Elvis Costello. Elvis Costello has never really, it has never come up that what he said about- Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that he referred to, I think, Ray Charles as a blind N-word. Uh, that's right. And I think it was Crosby, Steals, and Nash. Somebody, one of those types that was there and heard it and gotten like an altercation with him about it. He's apologized for it. That's enough for me. He was obviously quite drunk at the time and he was trying to be provocative, but yeah, I didn't, he, and he then, of course, his politics later were, he was very anti-Israel. I think he refused to play in Israel. I can't remember, but there was something like that. But yeah, this, I mean, pa, Clapton's now, By the way, it doesn't weird. change the fact that like Elvis Costello's worst B-side is better than the best thing that Crosby, Stills and Nash ever did. The first B-side that he ever put out, which is a, I think about two minutes long called Welcome to the Working Week is one of the, the best, best ones they ever recorded. And awesome. it's, not a, it's not on a record. And, yeah, it is. Uh, no, 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 that, that's on my aim is true. I think it might be on the reissue. I think it's a B-side. I'll have to look that up. But I think it might, on the, I know it's on the reissue. I have a vinyl of really? that. I'm pretty sure, I, yeah, I, I have oh, a I vinyl look that and up. the first song is Welcome to the Working Week. Because it has, or no, no, oh no, sorry. Welcome to the Working Week is, the yeah. B-side I think of that is Radio Sweetheart. Which is yes, a, that is not on an album. That's not an album, and it's kind of a country tinged with a lot of pedal steel. Great song, but it does prove your point that his B sides are better than most people's A sides. You know, not most people. <laughs> Crosby, Stills, and Nash completely overrated. Terrible yeah. politics, overrated. They needed Neil Young, who is a really good musician. Well, let's talk about Neil Young. Yeah, let's talk about Neil Young. Well, you know the thing that Neil Young tries to run away from, his Reaganite period. Everyone forgets about this. Neil Young has claimed that he was misquoted, that this was never, never happened. But there's a lot of evidence that in the early 1980s, he was, he was stumping for Ronald Reagan. Now he's trying to get his stuff off of Spotify or pulling it because of Joe Rogan. But well, now they're back, by the way. Did Are they back? That? Yeah, no. they just announced, okay, you know, it's, it's over now. Nobody really? cares about COVID anymore, Michael Moynihan. Yeah. It's like, we, <laughs> that was the last outburst. Like when everybody was talking about like Joe Rogan and like, oh my God, he has people on who say that maybe you shouldn't take the vaccine and da, 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 da. Yeah. 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 That was pretty it's pathetic. It. I was sad to see Joni Mitchell joining and with all of that, because I love her music. She's a yeah, great artist. Yeah, no, I mean, there was, it was funny, the, the kind of dominoes of forgotten about old people. It was like, you know, Moby Grape is no longer going to be on Spotify. <laughs> what? <laughs> Oh, really? That's yeah. first right. <laughs> Frampton comes alive, not on Spotify. He doesn't. Yeah. Anyway. Chocolate Watch Band has left Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> but those things, just as a music tip, there is a great compilation box. They don't have box sets anymore, but it was a box set called Nuggets, which is a bunch of great forgotten about psychedelic bands, which I Were they the psychedelic? Nuggets is not, that's the garage bands of the 60s, right? That's uh, like 96 a, tiers and the, yeah, there's yeah, with question mark and the Mysterians. Yes. There's a lot of there's a lot of there is a specifically psychedelic one too. Because I think they did a couple of Yeah, those of are great compilations. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, 
Do you remember when we used to have people curating stuff that we hadn't heard? I mean, now it's just like the internet's there, go find it. But I loved when they would have smart people putting out these compilations of stuff you'd never heard. Well, you know, this yeah. is a little bit of change, but it's worth it for our listeners, especially their younger listeners. It's great in a lot of ways that we have streaming services where you have access to all of this music and you can sort of find it at your own Well, You can get it instantly. But it does take something away from the fact that it used to be you had to go to a store and purchase a physical record or cassette or CD. And that yeah. was yours. And that made you kind of appreciate. It. And it also was an opportunity to not just hear the song that you heard on the radio, but to maybe explore the catalog. And it was like you could discover something and then share it with friends. You'd make them a tape. We're, we're missing that now. I was yeah, talking I mean, yeah. to producer before the show. Yeah. And, she, and I was like, oh, so like what music do you like? And her response was like, well, you know, whatever's on the shuffle or whatever the, you know, whatever the, whatever the thing is that, you know, will play the next one for me. Yeah. No, I mean, anyway, so that's a, that's a big, no, I mean, if I, if I can, if I can double down on the old man thing, because nobody yeah. wants to hear the old man thing, but you're going to have to. People do. That's is what podcasts that, Is, you know, the long player, the LP, the record, the lineup of the record, how these songs are arranged are incredibly important. Rick Rubin, who is one of the most important people for music of the latter half of the By the way, century. I hear he is red-pilled. That's yeah. my, yes, yes. I've that heard that a, privately yeah. he has been red-pilled. Uh, he almost did it publicly, but he dialed it back. I mean, there was a point at which he was following interesting people on Twitter, and now he's following nobody. I think just one person or something, but he, he dialed that back. But Rick Rubin, an absolute genius, but he has a podcast called Broken Record in which he talks about music with famous musicians, and he had the guitar player from Love On to talk about Forever Changes. That is a record that you, if you listen to beginning to end, in its arranged order is different than if you listen to the track separately. It's a totally different experience. And that kept on happening until the, you know, 90s. I mean, the Flaming Lips album, The Soft Bulletin, is a record that you have to listen from beginning to end. And that, you know, and I used to go into record stores and I'd buy records based on the covers, based on the labels. People used to remember that bands from, from certain places, I, I think I talked about this one time in the fifth column, I asked a, a, a producer of mine when we were shooting something one time, they put this music on in the car. You know, you're in the van a lot, you listen to music in the, in going from location to location. And you know, you share, you, you share and you find some interesting music that way. And I said, where is this band from? And they looked at me as if like, how, I have no idea. It's something I found on Spotify. It's like, well, you know, it used to be that bands from Minneapolis had a sound. Yes. Basements, Husker Du, I mean, that, it just made sense. Like LA, X and Exine Cervanka and like, you know, like in New York had a very particular thing. So the way we consume music is both better because I like the fact that I can find um, records that I've totally forgotten about and that I'd have to go. Like a good example is you mentioned White Riot by The Clash, a very political song. There was a response song to that by a band called The Mekons uh, in 1978, which was a track that was a favorite of John Peel's, the great uh, BBC DJ, called Never Been in a Riot. <laughs> making fun of the clash i found that on youtube so i was like that was last night i was like oh shit whatever about my mekon song so that's phenomenal but you know we tend to forget the stories that go with music and music is often you know about i'd say 20 30 percent the stories that go along with it and yeah the, and, the, and the I members of the bands right. too well listen with the remaining part of this interview i want to explore with you the idea that it makes perfect sense that great artists, whether they're musicians or visual artists or actors or playwrights, they, of course, they would have goofy politics. 
because it takes very different kinds of personalities to be not just a political leader, but somebody who understands like to be a great artist, you sort of have to think differently than everybody else. You have to see the world differently than to be very creative. And you also have to have an uncompromising approach to your art, which would maybe lead to an uncompromising approach to your politics. So, you know, it makes sense to me that Rage Against the Machine would embrace the shining path because Rage Against the Machine themselves <laughs> are like, you got to be like kind of nuts to put out that kind of music in the sense that like, no, you know, they're very creative mm -hmm. and they had to be, they could not accept other people telling, you know, they're telling them, giving them any input into it. So I'm not, you know, when you, when you sort of think about it, of course, really creative geniuses are going to have weird politics and bad politics in a way. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. Mm. What do you think? No, we shouldn't. I think that there's a point at which it tips from something that is part of the pose and part of the kind of instinct of the anti-authority, sure. not authoritarian, but anti-authority thing to something that becomes, I like a different type of authority. A good example of this <laughs> is Tom Morello, actually from from Rage Against the Machine, the guitar player from Rage Against the Machine, you mentioned you mentioned Rage Against the Machine when, when we were talking, yeah. we were texting about this. And I had to dig up something that I remembered. And this is, you know, a band that says, you know, burn it down. You can't, you know, do what they told you. They're not going to, you're not going to do what they told you. I love you, that right? song. Yeah. It's a great song, right? Do what they told some you. of those who who write who with like some of those yeah. <laughs> who, who, with forces the same yeah. that burn crosses. Yeah, it's a great. Yeah, in the whole thing about about you know kicking against authority is kind of odd when Fidel Castro dies and Tom Morello tweets by defying Yankee imperialism for fifty years, instituting the best healthcare, child immunization, and literacy systems in the Western Hemisphere, surpassing the U.S. and Canada, exporting doctors to countries in need, oh, et cetera, wow. et cetera, yeah. et cetera. And is saying, you know, this, you know, RIP, Viva la Revolucion, RIP Fidel. Those are the two hashtags. That is, these are no longer people that want to question authority. Those are people who love authority and who want to submit to a certain type of authority. And that's when it kind of unravels, because when you're a kid, you don't think about the politics as meaning much, because you'd have to, you know, read about the countries, read about the issues, but you love the instinct. You love the fact that like, yeah, fuck these people. I'm going to you know, kick against the pricks. But the second you kind of look at it, you know, with a more skeptical eye, you realize these people are all mostly frauds, right? I mean, they're perfectly happy living incredibly rich lifestyles and, you know, vacationing on Mustique with Richard right. Branson or something. They don't, I mean, it's an old criticism, but I think it's one that's always worthy because living in a way that meets your ideals, there are some people that do it. And I always have a lot of respect for those people, even if I think their politics are dumb. But it's not very often that you have that. Like, I mean, you literally have terrible bands who are super, super political and radical. You know, bands like Chumba Wumba, who, you know, were like essentially- Oh, that's right. They were anarchists. They were anarchists or something. And, you know, they, in fairness to them, they lived kind of by their ideals and, you know, wouldn't, you know, do a lot of the stuff and sell their songs and stuff like that. I think it's dumb. But at least they're at least they're you know keeping up appearances and actually doing the things that they purport to do. Yeah, I just think as as far as politics before concerned, like I don't care what Ted Nugent thinks about gun control. I mean, he's literally 
has songs about like sleeping with like 15 year old girls and not like, huh, I wonder what he thinks about tariffs on China. Right. Well, that's a great, that's the great Chappelle line. Like what, what, what does Jaw have to say about 9-11? Right. Oh, like, yeah. You gotta, right. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very good point. Like we shouldn't look to these people, but we you know increasingly in our celebrity driven politics, it's like the, the line is blurred. It's not entirely new. I mean, this has always been a part of American politics. If you read like Caro's great book about his, his biographies of Lyndon Johnson, he gets yeah. into like how, you know, if you wanted to be governor of Texas or senator from Texas, you had to basically like have like a honky tonk band and yeah, like yeah. give everybody free barbecue. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. there was always this sense of, you know, that, that there was always this blurring, especially in American democracy between the celebrity and our political, but it's become even like more intense, obviously with president Trump. I don't, by the way, consider this to start with Reagan. This is, this was the rap against Ronald Reagan. Yeah, but Reagan was the governor of California and and really did become a political figure, you know, over time. So he was, you know, he introduces Goldwater at the '64 convention. Yeah, and there's actually a theory, uh, not theory, but there's a story yeah. from one of his kind of personal assistants who I think Yoko Ono sued and is of of dubious reliability that John Lennon was a fan of Reagan, and we know that he met Reagan and they had a friendly interaction. But, but, you know, Lenin is a good version of somebody whose politics is a point of projection. Whatever you believe, whatever you want to believe, there is a period in John Lennon's life which will reflect your desire. I'm glad, okay, I'm glad you said that because there, was, there have been periods of John Lennon's life which were insanely over-the-top radical. 72, 73, yeah. 72, 73. You know, he goes on the Mike Douglas show and invites Bobby Seale on. Yep, yep, yep. Famous you know, what is he, he talks about like meeting Jerry Rubens and how nervous. Well, yeah, he, he was. met. Well, he met Jerry Rubin because they played a benefit concert in Michigan for uh, what's his name, the guy that was the head of the White Panthers, the right. radical group, and he went to jail. He might, and it, it, it was a justified. I mean, he should have actually supported him because he he went to jail on a trumped up marijuana charge, I think. But right. that was the kind of beginning of it. And there's a film called was it you know the u.s usa versus, yes, versus, no that, that was a very yeah. good film i recommend it's a good it. film and, it, and yeah. it has a really interesting diverse cast of people from different like g gordon liddy's in it and angela davis is in it which is like how you make a film because it's it's pretty interesting perspectives but you know i listen to angela this song on what is it sometime in new york which yeah. is a i really like the song it's about angela davis and the lyrics are the dumbest thing I have ever. <laughs> right. Like I sing them and I'm like, this is so fucking stupid. Like Angela, they put you in prison. They shot down your man, <laughs> George Jackson, who was literally like a horrible murderer. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean. Oh yeah. Or like Bob Dylan. What's the Bob Dylan song about Joey Gallo? Oh well, yeah. 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 Joey Gallo is my favorite because on that record, which is on Desire, you have both an homage to the murderer Reuben Hurricane Carter. And if you think that he's innocent, I wrote a piece about it for the Daily Beast, which was not, people didn't love it, but, but I stick by it. And what about Joey Gallo, who is a, like a member of the mafia who was shot at Umberto's Clam House. Oh, on, by the way, uh, let me just say Joey Gallo, Crazy Joey was Gallo probably yeah. responsible for like not the murder of other mafia dons, like of the yes. Colombo family. But yes. more importantly, there, this is a bit of a sidetrack, but it'll be interesting for her. Joey, Crazy Joe Gallo, if you listen to, there's a podcast by Sammy the Bull Gravano, who oh, yeah, yeah, a famous right. rat from the Gambino <laughs> family, who's now out of prison and has a podcast. Yeah. 
And he even says like, yeah, Joey Gallo destroyed the mafia. Well, he was totally out of control. Total cowboy, yeah. the worst. And I'm thinking yeah. they're like, the only one left defending him, I guess, is Bob Dylan, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I think he had a lion in his basement, by the way, in his, in yeah. his house in, in Brooklyn. Yeah, it was a completely in San Francisco. I mean, the, the hurricane thing, he went to prison. I mean, he went to the prison and met Hurricane during visiting hours. I think it was somebody else that gave him the idea for that song, his kind of, a kind of brief writing partner. And he never discussed it again. It's kind of gone. Like, he never discussed Hurricane yeah, and then he's, then he, then he, afterwards. He became a born again. Yeah, and then, and then his became, politics got great with neighborhood bully. Yeah, the, yes, stuff, the only so. the only the only Zionist song ever yes. recorded by a major artist. Yeah, that wasn't like a klezmer song. <laughs> Let me end on this. Do you think now that we have at least in our institutions culturally a kind of what I like to call the kind of authoritarian cultural left taking things over, mm. especially in our schools and elite media and elements of our culture, that like the next punk rock the next rebellious creativity is actually going to be right wing this is a greenwald of commentaries big thesis that mm -hmm. we are going to see a reaction to all of this stuff that's kind of coming very top down and that you will see in the in the coming years a kind of explosion of creativity asserting like the gender binary i don't think it'll be explicit Okay. I just don't think it's possible for it to be explicit in, you know, because the, the thing is, is that there's so many people that have interesting politics these days who don't count as right wing. I mean, yes, as, as I agree I'm with concerned, that. You know, they're, they think that this kind of stuff is stupid. They think that the cultural climate is stultifying and exhausting. But, you know, I meet these people all the time, by the way. And because on the fifth column, we talk about this stuff pretty openly. I'm the person that they come to and say things sort of voce and say, you know what, I actually, I don't talk about this, but you're right about X, Y, and Z. You know, we get emails like this all the time. Mostly, we have a lot of actors, by the way. It's true. A lot, I mean, we have, a, we have a, a very large base of listeners and we get people from Hollywood who email in and say, hey, you know, between us, it's my favorite podcast. And that's like really gratifying. Musicians, occasionally less so. But I think that the, the, the climate is still being enforced by a small group of people like if you think it's bad to be open about your politics and you know at your job or in a newsroom that still remains true despite the fact that you know it's a very fringe view it's like the tyranny of the minority in these places i mean look at it in literature i mean look at it i mean try to be in a big publishing company and you know i mean they publish conservative books they publish these but but the people who work there are not of that mindset. So yeah. I just don't think, I can't see it happening. And also, you know, it's just not a great subject for music, right? If, if it is like broad in general, like anarchy in the UK, God save the queen, that kind of stuff. It, white riot, just like fuck everybody kind of thing. Like the gender binary stuff is, it's hard to. No, no, parent, that's a fair point. But I do think that there's this great line from Billy Bragg, who is another, commie and a great really in my really terrible politics and a lot of great records. terrible politics great music again with billy bragg uh, and quickly before you continue i, yeah. I want to give bragg credit because he does engage with people who disagree with him for instance our friend nick gillespie did an interview with him which is really interesting and is on, oh, I'll on check YouTube. That out. yeah it's really it's really good okay so billy bragg has this great line he says if, if you've got a blacklist i want to i want to be on it yeah that's a that's a yeah. this, that's a very rock and roll 
attitude. It's a very punk attitude in a lot of ways. Which, by the way, is in a song that is named after a the bloody Maoist. massacre yes. that was <laughs> con conducted by a top-down government. <laughs> yes, exactly. And it's in a song that is praising Maoist in a way, right? Forward, the, yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. What on the they, album Workers Playtime, which has a Maoist image on the cover. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, yes. bizarre. So anyway, <laughs> if you've got a blacklist, I want to be on it. Well, I don't know if that's your attitude and you're like 19 years old right now that's and you're a forming point. a new band. Yeah. What is your blacklist? Well, if you're if write a song about like, you know, you know, why George Floyd was intoxicated or write a song. I don't know. Like find <laughs> that would, that would the, be not very popular. <laughs> right. Find. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, find the raw nerve. And the raw nerve right now is all like making fun of the hypocrisy of these super progressives with their luxury beliefs. That's where it is. So if you're looking for the blacklist, yeah. the blacklist is now like, you know, you've you've deviated from you know, the these progressive orthodoxies and therefore you must be deplatformed and can't. You know, the, the, I think the difference is, is that the reaction yeah. is so swift today and it's from everybody in real time on various social media platforms. I mean, when the Sex Pistols famously went on the Bill Grundy show and decided to be outrageous and, you know, called Bill Grundy, who was this very, who was, by, by the way, a bit drunk during the episode, but who is this like famous old curmudgeon and they start swearing. I mean, that's as, that's as you know, punk rock yeah. as they could be at the time. It's like, you dirty fucker, you dirty <laughs> rotter. You call him a rotter. And the next, next day, and we all know this from the name, I think of the Julian Temple film, the cover of The Sun says The Filth and the Fury. And yeah. it's on the cover of the newspaper and mission accomplished of what the sex business want to do, which was get into the public consciousness. Now, I just, it's, it's, you say something and it's kind of in a, in a, in a micro community attacked immediately and there's no way of really outraging people anymore and i suppose the way you do it would be something that is really so far beyond would be something about you know gender or, or race or whatever it might be and the problem with that is that the people who do stuff like that tend to be you know actual like fascist no no we don't like, like we, nobody's endorsing fascism yeah I'm yeah, just yeah, saying, yeah if yeah, you yeah. really wanted to upset the apple no no i know yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's nothing you, you would, can't upset anyone anymore. You would write a song called Thank You, Clarence Thomas, because <laughs> it's not a clump of cells. It's a baby. One, two, three, four. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you, Clarence <laughs> Thomas, you're a hero. Yeah, that Actually, would be... Did, did you saw the, the SNL sketch, one of the my favorite SNL sketches uh, of all time. With uh, yeah. Drury. Yeah, 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 which is unbelievably funny. And you know what the great thing about it is, is why it works in a way, is that what he is saying is punk rock, right? 100%, premise, especially The premise then. of this sketch, if you haven't seen it, is Fred Armisen is like as a kind of Sex Pistols type person, but he gets up on stage and he's just really into Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. <laughs> and that is, would have been a punk thing. And, and here's a totally forgotten about thing that people can look up, The Jam. Paul yeah. Weller's band, which then became the Style Council. All Mods Con. All, mod, all mod Cons, yeah, which is yeah. a great record. And their first album where they were just kind of a, you know, Mankay ripoff version of The Clash, they claimed it was a manager or something like that who tried to position them as Tories, which they ran away from later and became a part of Red Wedge, which was this group of musicians that were, you know, pro-labor and actually the sort of red end of labor, the sort of Tony Ben labor, and they did, did you know, benefit concerts and, and Paul Weller and the jam were always a part of those. But at the beginning, they were actually marketed kind of as a, as a Tory band. And 
that is pretty funny because they have songs like Eaten Rifles, which is making fun of people who went to posh private schools, right. public schools, as they call them. But yeah, it, it's, it's, there's been attempts at like, oh, you're going to be the, this will be kind of punk rock. You'll like Thatcher. And when that sketch came up, I was, I, I thought, do they know that the, actually the jam, there was a moment where they were attempting to do that? Or they claim they that's very interesting. Yeah. Like, you know, and I, you, also, you know, we most of I think it's correct to say that most of the Beatles politics were, you know, progressive. But, you know, George Harrison Penn Taxman is a yeah. is a libertarian anthem. It is literally the most right wing song ever written. <laughs> it is one of the most right wing <laughs> songs ever written. Right? Exactly. It's, it's it is literally like Grover Norquist has like a co-writing credit on that. It's unbelievable. It's a song about paying too much taxes. And what is what is the biggest, most famous kind of record that is obliquely about paying too too many taxes? Exile on Main, Main Street. Street. Yeah. Oh. Where you, where you go to the south of France because the British government's taking 90% of your income. Yeah, that was... That was but by the thing. way, that's another interesting thing is that the Stones in their era, like when they're in, this, in the early 70s when they're putting out all this great music, are of course part of the progressive sort of firmament in a way. Like they're, they were all, you know, understood to be part of like sort of that world. Yet, go back and listen to... Go back and read the lyrics to Brown Sugar. It's one of the most inappropriate songs it's yeah. gonna blow your mind it the song is basically what it's like a tribute to slave masters basically yeah. rape and it, raping yeah. your slave that yeah. is i think so, they didn't they just announce they're stopping they're not gonna play that song anymore i think they actually said that i mean listen which is I, like, i'm not i'm i'm a genie's out of the it. bottle <laughs> yeah the genie's out of, it's a little too late guys i mean that song is kind of part of the fabric yeah. of america I'm 85 years old i'm not gonna play this song anymore it's offensive <laughs> it's like no i think no 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 i know all the lyrics so i think you're good yeah, but so <laughs> it's another weird it's another it's an interesting thing because what was kind of seen as edgy and acceptable and okay at the time and i don't think that there was ever a moment where mick jagger and keith richards were you know like Wallace voters or something. No. But now that you would not be able to do that, even if you were like, listen, we're, we're, we're doing it to like sort of point out how horrible it was or whatever. Yeah, it is. It is, the, the, you know, and, and if people think about, you know, the Beatles and revolution, the, a yeah. song that was attacked, by the way, by the New Left Review, uh, Tariq Ali, I think was maybe editing the, the magazine at the time, attacked for who became later became very good friends with John Lennon in his very sort of hard new left period, but attacked by the new left review, you know, very brief period when they were actually Maoists, when, when Lennon became kind of a Maoist in 72 and apologized for, if you go carrying pictures of Chairman Mao, you're not going to make it with anyone anyhow, which is. There's an interview where Lennon says he regrets that yeah. line. It's yeah. on that Mike Douglas. He says he regret, or he's asked the question about it. He says, I regret saying Chairman Mao, and it, was, it didn't make any sense, but he was- Yeah, he, he kind of, I think he ends up walking that back later too, if not deliberately. But, you know, the Stones, when because they're always coupled, you know, are you a Beatles fan or a Stones fan? The Stones never really did politics, but they did one. And if anyone remembers this, I'm, I'm going to give Sweet Neocon? Yeah. <laughs> in there. No, yeah, from that there. was from 2004. That was a weird, that was yeah. a weird moment. And, and there was a COVID lockdown. So oh, there was that was kind of in the Clapton anti-lockdown vein, which is actually pretty good. But there is one moment in 1968. And if if you're raising your hand listening to this podcast, you get a gold star for the Jean-Luc Godard movie, Sympathy for the Devil, 
which has them in the studio recording intercut with a lot of footage of Black Panthers and a voiceover about, you know, the glories of Marxism. But that was it. And that was Godard doing that. But they were like, this is cool and trippy, man. Right yeah. after recording a really crappy, was it, I think it was after they recorded Satanic Majesty's horrible record. But yeah, that's, with, with yeah. two great songs on it, but a horrible. And she's a rainbow in 2000 Men Are Great, but the whole record sucks. So anyway. Uh, okay. Since, I, since you're here, I got to ask you this. We got to talk just briefly about Morrissey. Yeah. Oh, wow. Good. I forgot. Yes. Yeah. Right. And I just remembered, I was like, you know what? Moynihan's here because the Smiths. Yeah. One of my favorite bands. One of, yeah. and, and I love the Smiths too. Super lyric band, by the way. Yeah. Like really smart lyrics, lyrically always. But Morrissey's politics are bizarre. Bizarre. Yeah. Well, how would you describe them? Because he's an example of somebody I can't really, I can't put my finger on it. He's. So it's been there. It's been just been. He's the sort surface. of a reactionary at this point. He's a reactionary for sure. And I mean, a, a real reactionary too, but not in the, you know, I support Nigel Farage way, which is, you know, what, 15, 20% of the British population or something. It's much further right than that. There is a fringe party uh, led by an Irish British woman called Britain First which is, you know, the Oswald Mosley party of, oh, okay. of today. Yeah. And he was, he had said something about it. He had made noises about it. And then he was spotted, I think, on Jimmy Fallon or something, wearing a Britain first pin. This stuff had always been there. And this is the thing that you have to disaggregate, which I had always defended this in, in the wrong way. And I was wrong. Songs at the beginning of Morrissey's solo career have a pretty distinct anti-immigrant flavor to them. There is a song called Bengalian Platforms, which is a brilliant song on the first album, Viva Hate, which is about Indian people trying to fit it in the UK. But it can be taken in a bunch of different ways. The album, two albums later, Your Arsenal has a, has a song called National Front Disco. Now, National Front is an extreme right organization. And he was accused by the NME and all these newspapers, music papers, of playing in Finsbury Park with a British flag around him playing that song in saying that this is extreme nationalism. And he denied this at the time. He did have a B-side that really gave it away that nobody remembers called This Is Not Your Country. Uh, so that, that actually, that actually might, have been, might have been the first red flag that no one saw. Yeah. But yeah, it's very, very strange. But because he creates, and this is the challenge to people, is that he creates a type of fan that is so fanatical and so, like, I mean, they travel the world. It's like Grateful Dead for foppish people in a way. Yeah. And now there's all these people, they tend to be, you know, they were the kids that were outcasts in, in high school. They tend to mostly be kind of liberal people. And I've seen, because I've done a little, you know, background on this a while ago, that people have just said, I'm throwing my Smith albums away. It's almost like the people oh, in the South. Really? Yeah. People in the South burning their Beatles records after John Lennon says, we're bigger than Jesus. I mean, you know? It's that kind of thing of like people said, I reject my past. It's it's sad. It meant a lot to me, but no more Morrissey because of his kind of anti-immigrant politics. And this has been like he did a record in which I think it was a covers album a couple of years ago. And Billy Joe Armstrong from Green Day sings on one of the songs with him. And it's one of those things where, you know, Morrissey doesn't show up, but, you know, you go the, you go to the studio and there's lyrics for you. And he was widely criticized by people and said, how can you do a song with, and I think he might've even backtracked or apologized for doing something. Um, Cause that's what happens, right? Anybody who performs with him or tours with him, they get asked these questions. Do you support his politics? Which I think is kind of crazy, actually. I think it's crazy too. I mean, th this, this episode is sort of like part two of separate of my 
of an, an earlier episode of the re-education called The Art and the Artist, where you just have to understand that you're just never going to, all kinds of great artists are going to end up being scoundrels. Just going to happen. Yeah. And you have to be able to sort of separate those things. It's an important principle in general in this era of cancellations and so forth. Yeah. I'm very surprised to hear that because I really do think that Morrissey not just is a, is a great artist, but he's been in, he's put out a lot of really great material. Enormously 30, influential years. artist, yeah. Yeah. an amazing artist. And, yeah. you know, somebody who I won't stop listening to regardless of his, his politics. But as I said, I mean, I'm a funny to, writer. He's and a fun, funny writer. And I like, love, you know, I love artists that like, I love pop stars that can actually write hilarious songs. Exactly. Know? And that was the thing that people always misunderstood was that the Smiths were a depressing band. It's like, no, they were actually a hilarious band. And there was a kind of melancholy to it, but it was always laced with this incredible humor. And when I said before that, you know, I would kind of separate. Heaven knows me. I'm miserable now. Yeah. Yeah. But which is a funny song, by the way. Yes. It was very I funny. was looking for a job and then I found a job and heaven knows I'm miserable now. Yeah. You know, I mean, when I said like, I thought there were, you know, these are probably not Morrissey's views. He's talking from a character. That is the hard thing to always to always disaggregate. I mean, when you read Saul Bellow's characters and, you know, people say there's kind of racial problems with how Saul Bellow writes black characters or something. Is he writing from a perspective like Mr. Sandler's Planet, for instance, like, is he writing from a perspective that's his ideas or is he creating a character that has those ideas? And that's a really hard thing to understand. But then again, novelists keep that stuff close to their chest. You know, singers will put a pin on their on their jacket and go perform on on Jimmy Jimmy Fallon. They're a little more obvious about it because there's less there's less at stake. So yeah, I mean it's a it's a weird thing, but don't don't be alienated by 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 people's politics because if that were the case, I probably would not leave this podcast and listen to Billy Bragg, which I'm planning on doing because he reminded me how good that record is. It's a great record. With that in mind, thank you so much, Michael Moynihan. I really hope to have Thanks, you back. Eli. We need to do a hitch episode. We need to do a hitch episode. We need to get you back in the fifth column. You are a listener favorite, as I always tell you. It's uh, you and Ben Dreyfus. They, believe it or not. Believe it or not, you're, you guys are you guys are big fan favorites. So uh, come back anytime. We'd love to. We'll have you. do, and you'll. I will have you back for. I'm going to do a, a Hitchens special at some point. Let's do it. This has been the Reeducation with Eli Lake, a Nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast, and if you are listening on Apple Podcasts please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.